following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips, and thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Race-based stress and trauma are persistent, hidden in cultural norms, emotionally and physically destructive, compounded by discrimination based on sex, gender, religion, role, and many other factors. How do we recognize the impact of racism on black mental health? What is the related impact on physical health? How do we intervene in organizational and personal ways to address it? We are so privileged today to have joining us an expert in this field. Our guest is Dr. Juliet McClendon, Dr. McClendon is a clinical psychologist who studies the impact of racism and discrimination on racial ethnic health disparities. She also studies intervention approaches that can mitigate the impact of racism-related stress and trauma. She's a research psychologist in the Women's Health Science Division of the National Center for PTSD at VA Boston and is assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. She received her BA in psychology from Harvard University and completed her PhD in psychology from Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. McClendon is currently funded by a VA New England Career Development Award to evaluate an innovative intervention that targets racism-related stress and trauma to improve health and treatment engagement among veterans of color, as well as barriers and facilitators to its implementation within the VA. Dr. Juliet McClendon, it is my privilege to welcome you today to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Let's start, Dr. McClendon, with setting the stage with an understanding of systemic racism. Absolutely. Um, So I'll start actually just defining racism, because I think when you ask any given person, what, what does racism mean? How do you define it? You get a lot of different answers. And so I'd love to define it right now for this conversation so that we're just all on the same page. Um, So people often think of racism as a form of prejudice, of one type of group not liking another type of group or seeing them as lesser than. Um, But racism is not just about prejudice. It's also about power. And so in the United States particularly, um, we see racism as this ideology of the superiority of white people and the inferiority of people who are non-white. And what that does is it leads to the unequal and unfair distribution of resources and power in many domains. And that in turn favors whites. Um, And that's what we talk about when we talk about white privilege. The fact that there are particular privileges and resources that white people in the United States have greater access to um, due to systemic racism. And so in turning to talking about what really is systemic racism, Well, we often think about racism as this sort of interpersonal um, phenomenon, 
you know, sort of individual people or groups of people sort of not getting along and not liking each other because of their racial differences. Um, But systemic racism is this whole other level of racism that's often hidden from plain view. And what it, what systemic, or it's also commonly referred to as institutional racism, it refers to policies, laws, and formal or informal practices um, that give preference for access to resources to white people and prevents access to resources to people of color. Um, And I want to really highlight that this goes across, it's not just about laws and it's not just about formal policies, but there are also a lot of informal practices that we might engage in in our workplace or in a school setting that also have systemic impacts on the access to resources, whether that be hiring decisions or who gets into a certain university um, and those kinds of informal practices that are kind of unspoken, they also really um, are a form of systemic racism. Um, so I can give a few examples okay. um, of systemic racism. So, um, you know, one, one really common example that people bring up is redlining. So, um, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I mean, for many decades, um, there were areas in particular cities where the government would sort of demarcate certain areas as places where they wouldn't really give um, loans for home loans. Um, And these were generally areas that were predominantly black or that had a large percentage of people of color. And so in that case, it made it much more difficult for people of color and um, black people to get loans to live in the neighborhoods that they'd like to. And there are a lot of other factors that sort of prohibited um, black individuals from living in certain parts of certain cities and, um, and led to segregation. Um, And then if we think about sort of this next step of it, we also know that public school education is very much dependent on property taxes. So if you think about the ways in which the property values of neighborhoods that are predominantly black tend to be lower due to redlining um, and higher in predominantly white neighborhoods, then we can see how the education system then itself also becomes unequal. Um, So that's just one example uh, that is often talked about. But we can see how these different forms of systemic racism kind of are interlocking and sort of perpetuate one another. One example that related to this that I remember reading about was that a black man or woman with a a college degree and a, a fairly good salary would have less chance of being approved of or even shown a neighborhood than a white person who had some financial problems and did not have a degree or did not even have that stable a job. Absolutely, yes. There's been much research showing those kinds of um, inequalities in many different areas. Um, There's, in my field, in the field of psychology, there's been some work showing that when a psychologist gets a phone call from somebody who quote-unquote sounds white versus quote-unquote sounds black, um, that they're less likely to call back the person who sounds black and particularly people who sound like black males. Mm. So we see how there are these sort of ingrained biases that lead to um, unequal access to resources like housing, um, like quality education, like healthcare. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in terms of the discrepancy in terms of physical health, 
and its impact on mental health. Um, let's use maybe the pandemic for, as an example, um, Dr. McClendon. Mm-hmm. How, how has that illuminated or in some way amplified the discrepancy of the number of deaths of black Americans. I mean, people can simplify it by saying, well, there was a, you know, comorbidity or there was a um, existing problem, but it's not quite that. Well, there's a few different things going on, I think, and and I'm not going to probably cover every single factor that leads to the disparities we see in terms of COVID-19, But the two things that I really want to highlight are, one, there is an aspect of comorbidities that plays a role here. And so we know that individuals who have certain underlying conditions who who are diagnosed with COVID-19 are more likely to have complications and to die from COVID-19. And what we also know is that there are significant racial and ethnic disparities in many of those underlying conditions. And those disparities really um, come out of the fact that not only are Black Americans um, experiencing a lack of access to health-promoting resources, so things like safe housing, quality food, affordable um, quality education, and things like that that get, and also access to health care, as well as preventive health care. And all of those things have an impact on whether or not Um, An individual is going to be able to recover from any given illness, and it also increases their risk for having a chronic disease like diabetes or stroke or high blood pressure, and those set people at risk for COVID-19 complications. But in addition to that lack of access to resources, um, there's also higher levels of chronic stress that Mm -hmm. Black Americans experience. And so this really brings me to eventually talking about discrimination because discrimination is a form of stress. But even beyond discrimination, black Americans in many countless studies are shown to experience higher rates of a variety of different types of stressors, whether that's financial stress, whether that's family-related stress, whether that's work-related stress. There's just a higher burden of stress experienced by black Americans and other Americans of color in the United States. Um, And so, and what we also know um, is that stress and chronic stress actually reduces the ability of the immune system to fight off infection. And so we can see how black Americans and other people of color, particularly um, Latinx populations, are being bombarded with stress that's lowering their ability to fight off infections. And in addition, it's increasing their risk for chronic diseases. And so we have this confluence of factors that's leading to the disparities that we're seeing now. And not only that, but because of the disparities that we have in access to healthcare, um, access to healthy food, um, the kinds of jobs that um, people of color, black and especially black and Latinx Americans uh, overall are more likely to have sort of lower wage jobs. Um, and those are a lot of the jobs, a lot of the people who are being laid off. Um, you know, so we see 
um, and, and we have a problem, we have an eviction crisis right now that's predominantly affecting people of color. So we see how all of the inequities that were already present within the United States and within our systems are really coming to the fore now in this pandemic because it's affecting every single aspect of, of our lives. And so we're seeing these inequities in every single domain of our lives because we have systemic racism in every single domain of our lives. Mm. There's such a confluence of factors that make it so difficult because if I'm a a frontline medical worker who has to take public transportation and I am Mm -hmm. stressed by the fact that I'm worried about my children and I don't have access to either the medical care or the money to eat in a way or exercise in a way that would improve my immune system, my chances of being vulnerable to illness are greatly increased. Absolutely. And and I want to, you know, sort of expand on that and talk a little bit more about discrimination because I think when we talk about disparities, we often think about um, sort of, we, we sort of have this connection that we make in our minds with race and like socioeconomic status, right? And there is a disproportionate amount of black Americans who are live below the poverty line um, and who have very low income. Um, but we also have a, system, a substantial number of black Americans who, um, who are middle class or upper class. And what's really important here is really thinking about not just the resources, which is really important, but also the stress. And so um, individual like black Americans who may be um, sort of middle class or professional class um, also experience um, high levels of stress, uh, in my opinion, often due to um, their experiences with discrimination. Um, So one thing we can think about is that black Americans who are professionals, for example, who may are often working in predominantly white spaces. And that often creates a scenario where they are experiencing microaggressions, so sort of more subtle forms of racism or even overt forms of racism, um, where they may be in a setting where they are the only person who looks like them, where they may not really have a safe place to talk about what they're going through, where they may experience discrimination for promotion and things like that, because there may be a way in which there are cultural differences between the predominantly white culture of the workplace and the black individual. And so we also see high levels of stress among black individuals who are, you know, professional um, middle class as well. And we also see higher rates of many chronic illnesses um, among those groups as well. So a good example is um, in Prince George's County, which is a a very, uh, which is a um, pretty affluent black community in Maryland. Um, They had very high rates of COVID-19 infections, partly because Many of those individuals were frontline healthcare workers, but also because of the stress that um, individuals, like I said, experience um, when they are at sort of this higher level of income and are and are living or working in predominantly white spaces and experiencing discrimination and alienation. Mm. It, it reminds me of the the article that was um, that came out, I think, in the Times, and it's it was. Um, by a group of black female doctors and they were talking Mm -hmm. about the impact of the microaggressions, the um, demeaning comments like, could you go get the doctor? Or Mm -hmm. um, nurses not willing to set up a tray. 
of um, mm-hmm. instruments for them in a way they had seen. There's, first of all, a female-male difference. Female doctors mm-hmm. have a hard time. But when you're a black female doctor, they were saying this was really hard to deal with. And that's the kind of stress you're talking about. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. When, when um, as a black person, you get to sort of this higher professional level, um, there are ways in which people don't, they don't expect to see you there. And so people's sort of automatic biases are that you're not the doctor, that you're, you know, a lower level worker or something like that. And um, these assumptions are made. Um, And yes, that's absolutely stressful because it makes you feel like you don't belong. It makes you feel like you don't deserve to be there, like you're an imposter. And that can cause tremendous amounts of stress. Maybe it's worth just quickly defining a microaggression. We have a little bit more time Mm -hmm. before the break. I think that would be helpful. Sure. Yeah, so microaggressions really encompass, um, they're really defined as these more subtle slights and insults that communicate to the receiver, so the person of color or the marginalized, the person from a marginalized group, that they're lesser than, that they're not as smart, that they don't belong, um, and all these different aspects that just make people feel, like, denigrated. Um, And so these can be things like, um, what are some examples? Some examples are like, um, you know, going up to somebody who maybe is Asian American and saying, like, where are you from? And then that person responds, like, oh, I'm from Detroit. And they say, no, where are you really from? And that sort of signals to that person, the translation is like, you don't belong in this country. Right. Um, or something like um, saying to a black person, like, you're so well-spoken, you know, and it <laughs> seems like it's a compliment. And people often have good intentions when they say these things, but it's received in a way that is very demeaning. And mm-hmm. so the translation of that is, well, people who look like you don't speak proper English. So I'm surprised that you do. And so the, the, the key with microaggressions is that it's not really about the intention of the person who says it. It's about how it's received by the individual who receives it. Um, and that's a really important distinction to make because oftentimes we say things and we're not trying to be insulting, but it can come across insulting. And the reason why we think we don't, the reason why an individual may not know that it's not an okay thing to say because, again, we have a lot of these inherent biases that we develop from just, you know, experiencing our everyday lives. We get it from media. We might get it from our school. We might get it from our families, Wait, our neighborhood, our community. We're going to have okay. to take a break. It's such an important answer. Um, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're so fortunate that we're with Dr. McClendon today. She's a clinical research psychologist. Her area of expertise is the impact of racism and discrimination on racial ethnic health disparities. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 
p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety channel. Join hosts Navanav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the converse viewpoint, dare to be inquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Brave Hearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Are you tired of feeling disconnected and shut down? Since every choice has ripple effects, lasting happiness is a product of the choices we make each day. Tune in to Rise and Shine, not just for mornings anymore. Lorianne Rising and Uncle Mark Olmsted introduce you to authors, musicians, artists, and innovators, all actively engaged in designing a world that works for everyone. Make sure you're along for the ride, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. McLennan, and she is speaking to us about the impact of racism and discrimination on racial and ethnic health disparities. Um, Dr. McLennan, we were talking at the break about intersectionality. People hear the term. What does it mean, and how does it apply to our discourse today? Right. So intersectionality really refers to understanding the connections among different types of identity and how those sort of interlock and synergistically um, lead to qualitatively different experiences in the world. Um, so to back up a little bit, you know, oppression and uh, oppression in general um, operates in so many different ways. So we've talked about this a lot already, you know, it shapes where people are able to live, how much access they have to safety and health promoting resources and their ability to receive um, professional help, protection from the state, 
all of those things. So those factors in turn shape what kinds of experiences people have, what kinds of traumas and stressors they're exposed to. Um, And so marginalized individuals, they experience a lot of different stressors. And so when we start to think about the different forms of identity, for example, race and gender are two that I really focus on, we can start to think about the fact that those connect. So somebody can be, somebody may be black, but they're also a woman or they're also a man or they're also transgender. Um, And so that connection between those different identities then has an impact on the experiences that they have. Um, So for example, um, there's a stereotype of black men as um, being dangerous or threatening. So this is a stereotype that many people have. So, you know, oftentimes black men will tell stories about walking down the street past uh, a white person and the white person sort of crosses to the other side of the street clutching their purse in fear or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. so we have a lot of these sort of stereotypes about black men, right? And that shapes how they're treated by non-black people. It shapes how they're right. treated by police, which has really been coming to the forefront, particularly lately. It it affects how they're treated by healthcare workers, by service professionals, by everyone. Um, and this represents a unique form of, um, of stress for black men um, and also shapes their experiences of trauma. Now, on the other hand, for black women, stereotypes don't set in, center so much around dangerousness, but center more about around labeling black women as hypersexual or, and that shapes the kinds of stresses and traumas that they experience as well as how people respond to those experiences. So, for example, there's, a ten, there's sort of this phenomenon we see in um, popular discourse where oftentimes black women are less believed as being victims of sexual assault than mm-hmm. white women, although we right. have a problem with that across the board. Um, but we see it impacting black women even more strongly. Um, another example is the strong black women. A strong black woman stereotype, which often leads to the minimization of black women's pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we see how these stereotypes about particular groups uh, about about black people are very gendered as well. And so um, and so that affects the kinds of experiences of racism and discrimination that they have. Um, The other thing I'll say about that is that Uh, So that's intersectionality. That's understanding, you know, how do these um, identities connect and then how does that really change the way or how does that shape the way that people experience the world? Mm -hmm. Um, Another another thing I'll add to that is that it's not just that it shapes how people experience these things or how people experience the world, but it also shapes how they respond to stressful or traumatic experiences. So one thing that, um, you know, we've talked about in the groups I've been running is the ways in which women are socialized versus how men are socialized to deal with pain, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and and that sort of shapes the way that people cope with stress and trauma, right? So I like, I want to understand more myself about, you know, how does that gender socialization as a strong black woman, how does that shape how black women react to and cope with stress and trauma, Mm. right? How do gender roles within the black community shape that? Um, How do black women's frequent roles as multi-generational caregivers shape how they cope with stress and trauma or shape whether they even can cope or um, how much time they have to devote to their own self-care? 
Um, so these are all questions I ask myself and ask in my research. And I really, you know, think it's crucial to really understand the ways in which these different identities intersect. And you can add other identities in there, such as, you know, L- L- being LGBTQ and a woman and black. That has a whole, you know, that's qu- another qualitatively different experience than being a black heterosexual um, or cisgendered woman. Mm. In in a... Um focus group study with um, women veterans that I did with two other um, colleagues, we found it so interesting, um, Dr. McClendon, that they had different experiences they felt from um, black men in the military. For for one, in the VA, they were outraged that when the name was called and they stood up, the person would say, where's your husband? And they would say, I'm Mm -hmm. the veteran. Um, They were outraged that people did not believe, both both white and and black women in the groups were outraged that they had so much trouble with sexual trauma, which was often misbelieved or not believed. And then in terms of diagnosis, particularly the black women felt they were either dismissed or they were overdiagnosed as being Mm -hmm. severely mentally ill when they were simply as simply suffering from sexual trauma, continual stress. I mean, how do you stay in a unit when you're continually hit upon or in some way a predator is constantly bothering you? Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, these are things I hear from the women veterans that I work with as well. So if we just, you know, fast forward that to a high school, a college, a community, um, there are layers of stress that that we're talking about, or they intersect as you're talking about this as intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of really, what, you know... Go ahead. And intersectionality really originated, um, it, was, it really got more into the popular discourse um, being coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, when she, I'm not going to remember all the exact details of, of the of the case, but there was a, a lawsuit against a company that was um, being accused of discriminating against black women in hiring. And what they, what the company did is they said, well, we don't have any disparities in our hiring of black men, and we don't have any disparities in our hiring of white women. So you can't prove that there's any sort of discrimination going on against black women because we hire black people and we hire women. And Mm. the idea of intersectionality came from the idea that there's something different about being a black woman. That's a different thing. That's not just being a woman and that's not just being black. Um, And so it's this idea that um, the, that these identities are not additive. They really um, intersect and they're synergistic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important thing for people to think about. And, and one thing I say a lot um, that you mentioned earlier was that, you know, oftentimes um, people with intersecting identities go really unnoticed because when we talk about, like, when we talk about sexism, the sort of default is that we're talking about white women. And when we talk about racism, the default oftentimes is that we're talking about black men. You know, just kind of look at the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Both of those movements have really predominantly focused on white women and black men. And mm-hmm. so if we don't intentionally focus on this inter- these intersections, then people really fall between the cracks. 
Mm-hmm. I've personally wondered how black female cops have fared and, mm-hmm. and having just worked with you know women from the VA, but male cops I've worked with, but not women. And so I, I do wonder where what it is they face and how they're dealing um, with the situation which has become somewhat so divisive and so intensified lately. Let's talk a little bit about treatment interventions, because that's a piece of your research and a piece of your expertise. Yes. Um, So this is a really nascent area of research, um, is interventions that, um, well, interventions for health disparities in general. I mean, there's a lot, there's a good amount of work out there on um, interventions that can reduce racial disparities, particularly in physical health outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much on disparities and mental health outcomes and sort of we're in the very beginning stages of developing and testing interventions that directly target the stress that people of color experience because of discrimination. Um, so my work right now uh, or my, my main project right now that I'm working on um, is really fo- is focused on a, an intervention that directly targets racial stress and trauma. Um, and I can sort of go back a little bit and define racial trauma, um, if that's helpful. Um, So so trauma occurs when the amount of stress someone's experiencing um, exceeds their ability to cope. So we all experience stress in our everyday life, and we have coping skills that we use to manage the stress, and we're usually able to deal with that, right? But sometimes the amount that the just sheer intensity of an experience or an event or the accumulation of so much stress at once can go beyond our ability to cope, and then we just can't manage it anymore. Um, and so, um, and so that's what trauma is. Um, and of course, trauma comes from the medical, you know, word of trauma, where it's an injury. And with um, sort of post-traumatic stress disorder and racial trauma and psychological trauma, we're often talking more about sort of an emotional psychological injury. Um, And so I want to note, okay, so there's a psychiatric diagnosis that's called post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, Um, but PTSD requires that um, a traumatic event involve witnessing or experiencing actual or threatened death, serious physical injury or sexual violence, or hearing about that happening to someone close to you. Um, And in the case of racial trauma, so trauma that occurs because of an event, sort of an experience of racism, um, that event could fit into that definition, but it, it may not always fit into, into that definition. But, pe- but we find in the research that people can still experience traumatic stress symptoms or symptoms that look very similar to PTSD, even if they don't fit into that um, criteria of a traumatic event. Um, mm-hmm. so, re- so racial trauma can result from a range of experiences um, of racism, like racial harassment, accumulation of microaggressions. Um, You know, we talk a lot about exposure to social media, like videos of police killings Mm -hmm. of black people um, as traumatic um, and all the other things that we've been talking about. Um, And so racial trauma really often looks a lot like PTSD, um, but the difference between PTSD and racial trauma um, is one of the big differences is that Post-traumatic stress disorder relies on the traumatic event being over, 
Whereas for when we talk about racial trauma, racism is something that people continue to experience on a regular basis. And so um, that's a really important consideration in thinking about intervention. Well, it's ongoing trauma, which means your fight flight system never is not coming down. And that's what's so dangerous. Exactly, exactly. And so when the fight or flight system is constantly chronically activated, um, that has very major effects on your body, on your physiological system, on your biology, and on your mental health as well. Mm. Um, so when it comes to interventions, what this intervent, the intervention that I'm evaluating right now basically, you know, came out of the idea that, well, you know, it's really a broad intervention for all people of color who've experienced discrimination. And the idea is that, well, we know that people of color are experiencing discrimination. We know that this is a significant stressor and that it has significant impacts on physical and mental health. So how can we um, help people find ways to continue to be able to take care of themselves and buffer themselves against these negative effects of racism? Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, the ultimate cure would be to end racism. But knowing that that's something that, you know, I'm hoping that we're working towards, but not something that's going to happen today. And also that people have already had these very traumatic racist experiences. We need to find a way to help people heal from that. And so this intervention was developed in the VA um, by Maurice Ensley and, um, and, uh, and Marie Carlson, um, who were actually trainees at the time, they developed an intervention that focuses on um, um, improving coping. It focuses on psychoeducation about what is racism, what does it look like, and how does it impact our health, and also focuses really strongly on empowerment. So how can we help empower people to have the tools they need to respond to racism in ways that feel empowering and feel um and feel right to them and authentic to who they are. Um, and how can we also, it's a group intervention, so how can we also help people foster a sense of community and feeling like they have a safe space to talk about their experiences? Okay, we're going to um, stop and, right there. It is such an yeah. important intervention. We're going to take a break, and on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about this intervention. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're so fortunate to have with us Dr. Juliet McClendon, clinical and research psychologist. Her specialty is studying the impact of racism and discrimination on racial and ethnic health disparities. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. 
From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Juliet McClendon. Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at BU School of Medicine, and she's just about to explain an intervention to deal with racial trauma at the VA. Is that right, Dr. McClendon? That's right, yes. Okay. Um, I, oh, one thing I should have done at the beginning that I forgot to say is I want to make sure that I'm, I, I say that, you know, everything I'm talking about today are my opinions, and they don't reflect the opinions of my employer. Okay, Okay, we've got it. So in this Great. case, the goal, if you could just go give, roll us back for a minute, the goal of the intervention and the three components of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the goal of the intervention is to reduce the impact of racial stress and trauma on um, the health of people of color. And um, the main components are psychoeducation, around racism and how racism impacts health, as well as um, coping skills. So we focus on things like mindfulness, um, uh, as well as um, communication techniques. So for example, how do we respond if we hear a microaggression? What are some of the things we can say or not say? We do a lot around validating people's reactions to racism and understanding emotional reactions to racism. Um, And then we focus a lot on empowerment. Um, in terms of how can people empower themselves to uh, respond to racism in ways that feel authentic to them and um, engage within their communities and within society in ways that feel meaningful to them and feel um, that they feel proud of and that help them feel proud about their identity. And has it actually, have you started the groups or is this a plan that's that you're ready to launch 
So the way that this all developed is that um, the groups were originally developed in um, at the VA at a VA in Texas, and then over a few years ago, and then over a couple of years, it started expanding just sort of on a grassroots level through different um, VAs throughout the country, and then a group of people got some funding to do some consultation calls with people so that they could expand the groups. But when I came into the picture in 2018. Um, I learned about the groups, but I learned that they had never been evaluated formally. And so that's where I came in and decided um, to do a study. This is a small pilot study right now to look at um, some outcomes. So to look at things like traumatic stress symptoms, anxiety, depression, um, healthcare engagement, things like that, and to see whether the intervention is having an impact on some of those outcomes, um, sort of from a quantitative level and get some data. Um, And we're also doing interviews with veterans who participated to get some qualitative feedback from them as well. Um, And so the the study, this study has, uh, is up and running. um, We've completed almost two groups and we're doing two more. Um, And I'm actually looking at, um, so, so far before this study started, there had been mostly, the groups had mostly involved men. There were usually maybe, maybe there was one woman in a group here and there, um, you know, particularly because of the population of the VA is predominantly male. Um, and so I was really interested because we have a wonderful women's um, healthcare um, program, including mm-hmm. a women's trauma recovery team at VA Boston. I wanted to know, you know, are there do we need to take gender into consideration when we're running these groups? And so I'm looking at both mixed gender and women's only groups. And I'm going to look at whether there are some differences between those two groups in terms of how satisfied the participants are and some of the outcomes and whether we should really try and put some more emphasis on having women's only groups available. Mm. I I would imagine from the, the, um, the women veterans that we had in the focus groups that there might be in some ways they kept saying we want a square space to stand in as sisters to empower mm-hmm. each other. On the other hand, uh, as the as the co-chair of outreach for the American Group Psychotherapy Association, for years we've seen the power of mixed gender groups on mm-hmm. making men and women understand each other in a way that's profound and that just doesn't happen at the kitchen table. So I wonder about, sometimes you can do it in groupings. You start with same gender and then you do the mix and you mix the groups. That would be an interesting um, format. uh, Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, because they start out with, whenever we say there's trauma, you start with homogeneous grouping. So you start with same gender and then we see how they do. Because I'd love them to discuss microaggressions in a um, mixed gender group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, this is just my opinion. It's not backed up by any data yet, but my hypothesis is that it's, it's probably going to be pretty individualized. I think that there are mm-hmm. going to be some women who really do not want to talk about their experiences in the mixed gender group. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there are also many women who would be very happy to be in a mixed gender group and would be happy to you know, sort of learn about what are what are the experiences of men like and to be able to share their experiences of what it's like to be a woman of color. Um, so I think I think they're, they're that, 
it may be an, a sort of an individualized case-by-case basis, but we'll see what the data ends up showing us. In terms of, it sounds like great research, in terms of our listeners and racial mental health and physical health disparities in terms of care, mm-hmm. what do you want people to know and what do you recommend that even an individual might do? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, so I really, so if I'm sort of talking to, you know, clinicians who work with people of color or people of color themselves who are experiencing um, some of these uh, forms of racism and racial trauma or just racial stress, um, I really sort of emphasize these three different levels of, uh, to think about, you know, so there's the personal level um, and that is really about what do we do for ourselves? How do we take care of ourselves? You know, this is about finding things that bring you joy and peace and stillness. Um, so there's a lot of research on mindfulness meditation as well as prayer, um, which are, are activities that can really reduce the negative impact of stress um, as well as discrimination on health. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for black people, especially those of us who are descended from enslaved Africans, there's this um, sense that stillness is a form of resistance. And this is um, a quote from Dr. Thema Bryant-Davis. This idea that, you know, as enslaved people and as descendants of enslaved people, we really have this ingrained sort of um, sense of we have to work and work and work and work. And so being able to be still and at peace is something that is a form of resistance. Mm. Um, So, you know, you can just sit and count your breaths, There's a lot of guided meditations on YouTube. There's a mindfulness app that's curated specifically for people of color called Liberate. Um, Or you can pray. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, things like exercise, spending, you know, time with, um, well, that that comes a little bit later. But things like exercise, things like um, creative activities, all of those things fit into that area of self-care. So thinking about how do I take care of myself? And really, how do I carve out time for myself? Because that's a really hard thing to do sometimes. And, you know, um, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time. It doesn't no, have it to doesn't. Be it can even, yeah. exactly, yeah. it can be like 15 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, some amount of time where we're really tuning into ourselves. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the community level, it's really about finding your people, right? So finding mm-hmm. the people that you feel safe with, that you can talk to. This may be people you know in person, but it can also be like online communities, online groups um, where you can ask for support, where you can, um, people you can play and laugh with, you know, meeting over Zoom or finding another way to connect. You know, you can also find supportive mentors if you're, you know, at, in school or in the workplace, Um you can reach out to people. You know, that the point is that we're really in this together as people of color and as allies. And the point is really to find, just find these ways to experience joy with other people and to reach out for support. And it's really hard to reach out for support, but I think that there's really so much strength and vulnerability and in asking for help. Yeah, and you're, and you're then really, lo- go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, you're saying give yourself permission for joy and space yeah. and rest. Something intergenerationally wasn't allowed. Exactly. Um, and making sure that you're taking that rest and not feeling guilty about it. Because mm. if we feel guilty about it, 
kind of defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last level is the systems level, right? So that's finding ways to engage in activities or actions that contribute to changing systems to be more just and equitable. So that might be things like going to a protest and making sure to wear your mask, um, you know, joining a community organization or a diversity committee, you know, spreading the word about fundraisers through social media, you know, whatever it is that works for, it may be just talking to your friends and family about, um, you know, a book that you read um, that relates to some of these topics or, you know, being there to support, you know, so it, it, whatever it is, you know, make sure that, so I think that oftentimes people of color are very good at engaging in activism and advocacy because we want to see the systems change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I always say is it's really important to balance that activism and advocacy with the personal and the community levels and make mm-hmm. sure that we have a balance of taking care of others, taking care of ourselves, getting support for ourselves from others and engaging in the broader community and society. Um, and these are things that we can do for ourselves. And these are things that we can work on with our family members and our patients and our clients. It's a wonderful message, a wonderful message. Now, how can our listeners find you, your contributions, any of your resources? Um, so people can find me sort of on a regular basis on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. My handle is yes. at um, drjulietm. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I am active in research and so I publish as often as I can. Um, and so you can look me up in Google, Google Scholar and you can find all of my, um, research there. Um, you can also, uh, I have a, a, an article I wrote for Medium called Radical Self-Care, a love letter from a black psychologist. Um, and that talks a lot about what we discussed today in terms of, you know, how we take care of ourselves. Um, and those are those are mainly where you can find me. Yeah, it's a wonderful piece, the radical self-care. It's worth uh, everyone out there listening. It's worth reading that as well as your research. Um, I want to thank, thank you. you so much for coming on and for sharing your continued work and research in an area of such importance because it so overlaps and actually it affects everybody. That is, you know, Mm -hmm. your expertise on the impact of racism and discrimination on racial, ethnic health disparities. I want to thank you again for all your work and wish you the best on your continued research. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast by tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. This will be a podcast on my website, on the podcast apps of your iPhone, on iPhone, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple TV, Amazon Alexa, etc. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week. Please be safe, wear masks, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening. Be listening.